All right. Good morning. How are we doing? We good? Well, uh, my name is Jake. Like Mark said, it's to be determined if it's a treat to have me here yet. Uh, we're going to be in Lamentations, and that is a doozy. So uh, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I love this church. Uh, uh, I love the leaders of this church and the fellowship we get to have uh, just right up the road. We as a church in Cedar Rapids would not exist if not your vision and generosity, so we're forever grateful to you guys, and it's just a treat to be with you. Uh, hopefully, it is an encouragement together as we open God's Word. Uh, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Lamentations, and I'm just going to be up front with you. This may be the best message in Lamentations you've ever heard. Uh, chances are because it might be the only message in Lamentations you've ever heard. Uh, but that's where we're going to be, and we're just going to jump right in. Uh, we'll we'll kind of get some context as we go, but Jeremiah most likely wrote uh, this book. The book had no title in Hebrew. It was just known for its first word, how. And once we kind of better understand the context of what's going on in Lamentations, you might understand how fitting that is, because when you're in great distress uh, and depression and frustration, how is a question you may be asking. Like, how did this happen? How did we get in this situation? God, how are you allowing this to happen? And there's a lot of angst and frustration in this book. It's five poems that are written in response to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. So you got to understand what's, what's going on here. Like, this is 500 years of this nation, and the biggest catastrophe in history uh, is getting addressed here. And it was a horrific time, like horrific time. When you get into some of the descriptions that we see what was going on, like starvation, um, suffering was happening, uh, people reverting to cannibalism in this time, just a, a horrific time. One that for us, it's just, it's probably really hard to relate to, but even beyond the physical suffering that they were going through, um, for the Israelites to lose Jerusalem, it would be like feeling they lost their special relationship with God. And what would rise from that emotionally is, has God abandoned us? Anybody in this room, can you identify with that emotion? Like, does God still care about me? Does he still see me? Does he... Do I still matter? Has he completely abandoned us and left us? Anyone ever feel like that? Has anyone ever felt with emotions where you just, your circumstances, for whatever situation, um, you just don't even want to get out of bed. You don't want to face the day. You don't want to talk to people. You certainly don't want to come to church. Uh, you don't feel like singing. And if you do come to church, you're kind of tired of kind of putting on that uh, everything is fine face. And you're just kind of wrestling through, because here's, here's what happens. Sometimes there's pressure uh, within Christianity that you have to be happy all the time, right? Everything is great. Everything is awesome. Everything is fun. You're fine. You're doing great. And any kind of crack in your armor to show like, no, everything's not okay is a sign of weakness, or you don't really have faith, so you can't show that. And there's just pressure uh, to be happy all the time. That just doesn't jive with Scripture, uh, we see an array of emotions displayed by Jesus, and this book is certainly honest with their emotions and what's going on. In fact, more than uh, it not being wrong to grieve, what's something that's interesting that comes out of this book is not only is it not wrong, it's good. Now, I didn't say fun, but the author shows that there is some, some good that comes out of grieving. In fact, let me read a section from chapter 3. He says this, starting verse 26. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. 
Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. He's like, yeah, embrace that. So the writer of these poems is kind of saying in a prophetic voice, hey, there's something good about this. Don't be so in a hurry to get out from under this pain. There is something really good that we can learn from here. Like we need to have a perspective that when things don't go away or we're in hard situations, that we shouldn't rush to get out from under it, but what can we learn from it? And what does it do to us that we can be described as good? In fact, uh, one of the stories, I've told Mark this before, but um, you know you know, Mark, he's just I love his optimism. Everything, everything is great. Uh, he has this great outlook on life. In fact, we were coming out of eating at the Bluebird Cafe. It was like February, March, and Mark steps in this big puddle of slush, right? And I was upset for him, like, oh, that's, that's awful. And Mark, in his fashion, just goes like, oh, I love slush, right? <laughs> like, who loves slush? Like, what's wrong with you? But he's like, what he said is like, oh, it just reminds me spring is coming, uh, and there's something like, hey, we need to step in slush every now and then to kind of deepen the hope for spring. And what the author uh, in Lamentation is saying is like, it's good when you get your face in the dirt sometimes. When there's circumstances that drive you to your knees, it's good to kind of carry that yoke of sin when you're young. It's shaping. It's good to have to quietly wait for God's salvation. Like it does something to us that we need and we can't get uh, other ways when life is just going all peachy, Right? And I've said this before, you don't microwave brisket. Any barbecue lovers in here? Where are my people at, right? You can't put a brisket in the microwave and get that kind of like uh, melt in your mouth, bar, like that wonderful, glorious taste that is evidence of the existence of God, right? You can't get that in a microwave. How do you get that? Like it's a long, low, and slow process. That's, that means it's got to stay in the smoker. But, but that process produces something, something wonderful. And there is a process of even being in the angst of sin and brokenness in our world. Like, it does something. There's a flavor that it gives us an angst for God, a passion for God, a frustration towards sin, a longing for God to come that is important, and we need that. Listen, nobody likes pain or brokenness. But maybe we could use a lot more of it. And maybe you've never thought of it that way. But if it would drive us to our knees and increase our passion and hunger and angst for God, wouldn't that be a better thing for our own hearts? Lamentations teaches us how to respond to God in suffering, but it's not just teaching us something. It's inviting us into something. And that's the beauty of this book. See, at some point during the period of exile, people begin to gather corporately to lament and mourn together. Uh, as a congregation. And according to Zechariah 7, um, there was a tradition uh, of mourning in the fifth month, which would be July, August. So right where we're at right now. So this is fitting. But they would get together. And in this fifth month, they would kind of uh, have this uh, ritual service of mourning together. And uh, they developed laments in this time. And this book of Lamentations is one of those things that got developed there. And the book of Lamentations was corporately uh, read yearly at these gatherings. And you think, well, that sounds like a fun service. We're just going to get and read like some really depressing stuff. But it's like, why would they do that? Why would they say like, hey, let's get together next year and read that same stuff? Why, why do we like uh, subject ourselves to that kind of mourning and grieving and lamenting? Like, what was the goal there? 
Well, for people who may not have even been alive in Judah during that period of exile in 587 BC, they were invited to find their place in the community that was affected by it. And they're telling the next generation, hey, you need to learn how to grieve. You need to learn how to grieve. You can't just run away from hard times or ignore hard times. You need to learn how to deal with hard times. Life is not the Lego movie. Everything isn't awesome. There's pain. There's brokenness. There's hurt. It's real. And you need to learn how to deal with it. So let me ask you this. Do you know how to grieve? And you might think, I didn't know that was something you had to learn. Like, I think it comes pretty naturally. Like, when pain happens, you just do it. You just grieve. Let me ask you this then. Do you know your way out of grief? Because maybe you've seen people who are just kind of stuck in it. Their pain defines them. They just dwell on it and it consumes them and hurt eventually turns into anger, which eventually turns into bitterness. And you just kind of watch that awful process happen. It becomes their identity. See, guys, it's not wrong to grieve, but there is a wrong way to grieve. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul's talking about the coming of the Lord, and uh, he, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about people who fall asleep or people who, who pass on, who die, so that you don't grieve like those who have no hope. So he's saying, like, it's okay to grieve. Like, you should grieve, but there is a, way, a right way to grieve and a wrong way to grieve, and I don't want you grieving like people that have no hope. So maybe we put the question this way. Do you know how to grieve like a Christian? Do you know how to grieve like a sinner? What, what do we have to learn from this book? Because as people who believe in God, what are we supposed to do when we feel like God has abandoned us? What are we supposed to do when things are so bad we don't feel hope anymore? What are we supposed to do when we can't remember the last time we felt happy? Because all of those are emotions that get expressed in this book. So Lamentations chapter 3, this is where we're going to be. We're going we're to we're kind of fly over the whole book. I just want to focus in on chapter 3. Um, because if you would read this in English, it would sound like just a, an awful vent session uh, that doesn't really end well. But Lamentations is actually very intentionally structured Uh, Chapter 3 has some really encouraging verses in the midst of a very depressing book uh, on purpose. And we're uh, going to look at that. But our tendency, uh, as good Westerners that are used to fairy tales, is we look for a happy ending. Uh, But you're not going to find a happy ending in Lamentation. In fact, let me read to you the ending of this book. It says, uh, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The end. That's the end. That's how the book ends. So it's kind of like, please help us unless you're still really mad at us. And then it's over. Like you, you look for this happy ending, but you're not going to find it in Lamentations. But the book is very intentionally structured. Uh, there's five poems. Um, and the first four are uh, acrostics where uh, every new line starts with the letter of the alphabet. And in Hebrew, the alphabet, there's 22 letters, um, and there's one verse per letter, except chapter 5. Chapter 5, the last chapter, doesn't follow that acrostic pattern, but it still has 22 verses. 
It's just out of order, which is kind of the point. It's saying we're ending back in chaos, but all the other ones kind of have this acrostic pattern. Uh, but chapter 3, where we're going to look at, that's right in the middle, also falls in acrostic pattern, but there are three verses per letter of the alphabet, making it the longest poem in the book, and really emphasizing this is where we find some answers in the middle of this chaos. So I want to read some of, uh, or a lot of chapter three, but I, I want you to just kind of uh, bow your head and close your eyes, uh, and I want you to try to feel what this author is feeling as I read some of these verses, okay? Let's do this. Now, some of you are like, I'm not doing it. I'm not bowing my head. You're, you're still looking at me. <laughs> All right, let's do it. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has seated me with the wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is befret of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gale. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So he's being pretty honest with how he feels. He said, like, all, I don't even remember what happiness is. Like, all hope is gone. My soul continually remembers all the pain from this, and it's bowed down before me. Its face is in the ground. But then the next verse says this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And you're like, well, which is it? Do you not have hope anymore, or do you have hope? And what he's talking about is going from no hope to hope, and what's going on is the circumstances haven't changed, but what's going on in his head has changed. Because I call this to mind, which brings me hope. As it's not in front of my mind now. I got to call it. It's out there. It's not occupying my thoughts. It's not front and center of my thinking. It's something distant from me. What's in front of my mind all the time is my circumstances, this awfulness, this pain, this grief. That's what I'm drawing about. And it's taking all the hope from me. But if I want to refill and restore my hope, I have to call something different to mind that I'm not thinking about. And I got to put that in front of me. So what is it that he calls to mind that brings about hope? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. He's thinking about the character of God. His hope is not just optimistic thinking. It has an object. I hope in him. This is what I know to be true about God. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. I know how great his faithfulness is. So the author of these poems is helping those grieving go from the pain of their circumstances to the character of their God. Like there's a change of, of where you give your attention. And he needs to take it from how bad his circumstances are to how great his God is. And this isn't look harder in your circumstances to find something positive. This isn't like where's the silver lining. This is stop being consumed by your circumstances. They're awful. They are. But your God is still awesome. Start being consumed by your God. And it's a discipline of mind. He says, I call to mind. As in, it's not what I naturally want to think about. You ever remember being in those situations where something terrible has happened or you've been hurt or whatever you're going through is awful? We have a, a tendency just to want to dwell on them. Uh, we want to get around other people to reinforce them and talk about them, and it consumes, and, and anger grows, and bitterness grows, and it just kind of, kind of sets in, and it begins to shape us. And in those moments, what are you saying? Like, hey, let's talk about who got it. And you're like, what, what does that have to do with my problem? Well, it has everything to do with your heart and how you see your problem and how you handle your problem. And this author is not taking lightly how awful his circumstances are, but he's also not taking lightly how awesome God is. And he shifts the focus. So here's what I want you to remember. If we're trying to grieve like Christians, when times are bad, remember the character of God. When times are bad, remember the character of God. Which is different than our tendency to let bad times determine the character of God to us. You ever see that happen? When we use our circumstances to make conclusions about who God is. Because when I get bad news from the doctor, I'm like, God, have you forgot about me? Do you not care about me anymore? When you're in this marital strife, do you feel like, God, you've abandoned me? Am I, am I kind of using these tough circumstances to make conclusions about who God is? Listen, either you're going to let bad circumstances teach you bad doctrine or you're going to let good doctrine lead you through bad circumstances. You tracking with me when I say that? Either you're going to let bad circumstances teach you bad doctrine about who God is or you're going to let good doctrine, the nature and character of God, lead you through bad circumstances. And bad circumstances will come. You live long enough we live in a fallen, broken world. You're going to go through that. And in the midst of that, you're going to have to ask in some point to navigate your way out of it, what do I know that's true about who God is? I know his steadfast love never ceases. I know his mercies are new every morning. I know he's great and faithful. You have to come back to who God is. 
I mean, this book is being really honest with feelings. And, and you can too. You can be really honest with how you're feeling. Those feelings are real feelings. But feelings eventually have to get filtered through truth. And what you know trumps what you feel. And you may feel like God doesn't care about you anymore. And you may feel like God has forgotten you. And you may feel abandoned. And you may feel like there's no hope. But at some point in your grieving, you're going to have to take a time out and say, okay, that's how I feel. But what do I know? I know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I know his mercies are new every morning. I know his faithfulness is great. I know nothing can snatch me from the Father's hand. I know he's a better Savior than I am a sinner. I know he has rescued me from sin and death. I know he has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. Okay, then what I know trumps what I feel. And what you know trumps what you feel. And that's an important part of navigating your way out of grief, coming back to who is God and what do we know about him. Well, there's more to it than that. So what else about God is important for us to know in tough times? Look down at verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion. He causes grief and he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Like that's not his... That's not in his nature to just afflict from his heart. Like he doesn't take joy and pleasure in your pain. That's not who he is. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. That's not who he is. Who has spoken, who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it, commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? When times are bad, you remember the character of God, and here's what's going to hit us. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And he is sovereign over everything, the good and the bad. And he punishes sin. He punishes sin. And his mercies are new every morning. Now put all those ingredients in the same crock pot. What's that going to cook up? That's, just, that's some tension there. That's some real tension. Because here's what's clear about this book. The Israelites that are going through this horrific time, it's happening because of their rebellion. It's happening because of their sin. This is God disciplining his people. This isn't like bad things happen to good people. This is, there's no good people. It's like, you are totally deserving of this. We sent prophet after prophet after prophet pleading for your repentance, and you persisted in sin, and this is what happened. I mean, if nothing else, we could see that uh, one thing we could learn from this book is we don't take... We should not take God lightly. He may be slow to anger, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get there. And he got there. 
And he says, why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Like, we, we know why this happened. They persisted in their sin. And listen, all the brokenness we feel in this world is a result of sin. Now, I'm not saying that the reason you're going through a hard time now is because in seventh grade you cheated on a math test or something like this karma thing. No, I'm saying at the root of every brokenness and fallen thing we experience in this world is because we are a creation in rebellion against our creator. And this world is not what it's supposed to be. And death and brokenness and rebellion and sin and everything around us is the result of that. So what do we do? What do we do? Because here's the reality. You're a sinner. There ain't one of us in here that has our hands clean on that. All of us wrestle with our own sin. We're insecure. We're jealous. We covet. We lust. We're greedy. Like, we're sinners. Even if your mom never told you that. You are a sinner. Hopefully that's not a surprise. Like, whoa, nobody's ever said that to me. Like sometimes we can live in this world where it's just like we have this toxic culture of encouragement. Now, the Bible says that we should encourage one another. But sometimes we pat ourselves on the back when we should be like kicking each other in the pants. Like there, there's sin is real. It exists in our heart and it's ugly and we should, be, we should hate it. I have experienced a new level of optimistic encouragement because one of my daughters for the first time is in softball. Uh, and softball, girls softball, I'm telling you, the encouragement is like, it's at a nine or a 10. It's high, it's up there. Uh, there was one time uh, the girl walked somebody and another teammate yelled out, it's okay, I still love you. Uh, I was like, wow, this is different than what I was used to in football. Uh, right, what do you hear in baseball or softball when they strike out? Good swing. You don't say somebody's got in a car accident, good steering. You don't know that works out that way. Like sometimes we, like we can just like, we just don't want to upset anybody. But here's why I tell you this. This book is really upsetting. It's really upsetting. And until you get to the grips of the reality of your own brokenness and sinfulness, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases is not that good of news. But when you understand what you deserve because of your sin, then how awesome is grace? How amazing is grace? He's saying, why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? He's like, I got nothing. We totally deserve this. And you're told, like, no, you deserve the promotion. You deserve a vacation. You deserve to be happy. You, you deserve to, you know, have your dream home. You deserve that car. You deserve this. Like, you deserve that diploma. Whatever. Like, you deserve this. But according to Scripture, you know what we deserve? Hell. The wrath of God every day for eternity. That's what we deserve. God punishes sin, and he is sovereign over everything. There is no escaping him. But his mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love never ceases. So what are we to do? Look at verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Church, hear me now. The only hope from God is God. 
The only rescue from the wrath of God is the mercy of God. They're in these circumstances where they have rebelled against God. God is angry with them. God is disciplining them. And they still in that moment say, hey, let's go back to him. Let's let's go back to him. Did we rebel against him? Yeah. Did we anger him? Yeah. Is he upset with us? Yeah. But here's what we know. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He is a faithful God. Let's go back to him. Guys, our only rescue from the wrath of God is the mercy of God. And maybe if you're a parent in this room, you might identify with this illustration of it. But I remember my oldest daughter, my middle child, being young. And there's a, whatever your kid is, there's like a period of time where every kid is cute, Right? It may be a smaller period for some kids, but uh, there's a window where it's like every kid is adorable, and especially in those toddler years. But there was a time, I remember we were disciplining uh, Johnny, my oldest daughter, who's still adorable, uh, and she's going to be at Iowa next year, so keep an eye out, okay? Um, and you're sitting there talking to your child before a spanking is coming, and they know a spanking is coming, and they really have about three options, right? Uh, one, they could just like you know, stick the lip out, turn around, just be like, let's do this. Let's get it on. I ain't scared. Uh, And if they have that attitude, one, you kind of have to respect it, but two, you're in trouble, okay? If that's the attitude of your child, uh, you're in trouble. They have no fear. Good luck with that. Two, they could choose to run. Like, I'm just going to run and hide. Not a wise choice from a two-year-old trying to get away from a parent. Not going to happen. Or, and this is what Johnny would do, they would take a step closer and look at you with those big eyes and just go, right? Because it's like, hey, hey, I know spankings, but I also know hugs. Let's do that. Let's do the hugs instead, you know? And as a dad, you're just like, yeah, I like hugs better too. Let's do that. Like, that's better. But just like, I have no, like, I can't run from this guy. I know I did. I disobeyed. Like, what am I going to do in this moment? And what they do is they just step up and they look and just be like, dad, you know? They just reach, they're like, hug. Let's hug. The only rescue from the wrath of God is the mercy of God, and our God, love never ceases. Never comes to an end. His mercies are new every morning. And in that, let's look at verse 41. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. Here's what we do, church when we're in grief, when we're in pain, when we're in hurt, maybe it's circumstances caused by your own sinful decision. Here's what we do. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I deserve it. I got nowhere else to go. I need your mercy. And I can reach my hands up to you as a sinner knowing that you are the one that I've offended because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen, you cannot run away from God's wrath, but you can run to his mercy. In Lamentations, we see people who have been really bad, and we see a God who is really angry. And yet, in the midst of that, there's a truth of God's character that sends them back to him. Let's return to him. Let's lift our hearts and lift our hands to him. 
the limitations, we see very clearly both the wrath of God and the mercy of God. And you know where else we see clearly both the wrath of God and the mercy of God? The cross. The cross is a very violent expression of God's mercy. Because on the cross, sin is being dealt with. Sin is being punished. It's a brutal, bloody display of justice. But the one on the cross was not the sinner. You are and I am. So when we see this God who is holy dealing with sin, we also see his mercy on the cross. And I don't know what's going on in your life. Maybe you're in here and you feel like God has abandoned you. And you actually wonder if God still loves you. And maybe you're in a mess because of the sinful choices that you make. But here's what I know to be true. His steadfast love endures forever. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And if you come to your father like this, you will find it to be true. And as we remember the cross as a church through some juice and some bread, what we're doing is we're coming to God as sinners like that child with her hands up wanting to receive his mercy. And you'll find it. And you'll find it. But as we celebrate communion as a church, I also want us to kind of learn from the book of Lamentations. That when the band comes up and starts to play and it's the next part of the service and you kind of come up as rows, would you do this for me? Don't rush. Slow down. And lament of your own sin. Lament of your own sin. Hate your own sin. Understand what your own sin deserves. Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his own sins? Understand how awful your sin is against a holy God. Be brokenhearted over your sin. Cry about your sin. But call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And when you're ready, come forward knowing that you need that mercy. And it's so sweet when you are aware of your own sin. And then you see the greatness of God's mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we can become so calloused to routine sins in our own life and get to thinking that maybe your grace is something we are desperately need of. We pray that we need your Holy Spirit to do the loving,
convicting work in our own hearts. Like a group of people getting together every year to read through this book, reminding them of the pain that sin causes. Remind us of the ugliness of our own sin. But in the midst of it, as we eat some bread and drink some juice, remind us again that you're a greater savior than we are a sinner. And that your love never comes to an end. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And would you flavor us with the reality that you are a holy God that does not tolerate sin. And you're full of mercy and grace. Create in us a heart that adores you all the more. Pray this in your name. Amen.